0: Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim. Hey, I'm Rich, And if you're curious about where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show. Interest in local and regional food systems has been trending upward for a long time now. I mean, the hilarious is the chicken local sketch on Portlandia is now over 10 years old. YouTube that one if you haven't seen it already. As you know, the pandemic has only accelerated consumer interest in having strong relationships with where they source their food. But what sounds easy on the outside, you know, farmer produces food and consumer buys it is much more complicated in practice, especially at any reasonable scale. Probably the single biggest barrier to local and regional meat production is meat processing capacity. You've probably heard this. There simply aren't enough local and regional slaughterhouses for livestock and poultry producers to scale their direct-to-consumer operations. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Low margins, regulations, and labor availability, just to name a few. So what's the answer? Well, today's episode tells the story of how Adam Parks built a local meat business and how he's part of a group that has formed a cooperative to solve this problem for themselves of local meat processing capacity. Now, before I introduce you to Adam, I wanna make sure you know that one of my favorite ag podcasts, Field Work, is back for an all new season. Co-hosts Mitchell Hora and Zach Johnson, who you may remember from episode 205 last year, are back to talk all things sustainable ag. This season, they'll tackle financing farm innovation, carbon markets, new sustainability standards and crops like cotton, and so much more. They're also doing a special focus on Washington County, Iowa, where Mitchell lives in farms, which has a strong conservation culture. What's the special sauce? Well, listen and find out. Episodes drop weekly on Wednesdays, and you can find them at fieldworktalk.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, guys, for supporting this show and best of luck with this new season. Okay, back to today's episode with Adam Parks. Adam is the founder of Victorian Farmstead Meat Company located in Sebastopol, California, just north of the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, I grew up not far from where Adam is, and my childhood ranch butcher is somebody that uh, Adam knew as well. It's kind of how we connected first off. They've been selling local meat in the area since 2010 at farmers markets and through a CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and more recently through Home Delivery. Adam is also one of 16 founding members of the Bay Area Ranchers Cooperative, also known as Bar C, which is a co-op of local producers who are pooling resources to build a mobile USDA-inspected meat processing facility in the area. We talk about all of that in this episode, as well as some great lessons Adam has learned on marketing, how to build trust with customers, and the future of local and regional food systems. I'm going to drop into the conversation here where Adam is sharing how he got into all of this.
1: You know, it's funny. uh, I did what, you know, a lot of kids do where uh, I grew up ranching, working the family ranch and whatnot, and left as quick as I could when I was 17 to go to college and did a lot of other things. I started out after college. I went to Cal Poly as an ag major in San Luis Obispo and didn't do anything with that uh, in agriculture for 20 plus years. I uh, was in insurance for a few years, got into professional golf for a while, managing players and, and marketing the Canadian PGA Tour. And then in 2008, we were living in Stockton when the housing crisis hit, and we lost everything. My wife owned the largest daycare center and infant center in Stockton, and uh, we lost the house and the cars and the business and everything. And I'd like to tell you it was all the fault of the big banks and everything, but I made plenty of bad decisions that led to that. And We were very fortunate that we had a uh, small house here on the uh, family farm that my grandfather purchased in 1972 when he retired from the Air Force. As a place to bring my two small kids and my wife to live. And the first thing we had to do was feed everybody. You know, I knew how to raise animals. So we bought 25 meat chickens and chicks and a couple of small piglets. And we had sheep on the farm already and set about raising them up. And uh, as we were processing them, it, it occurred to me that, you know, there was a lot of really good meat grown around here that was sold out to feed lots or large packer houses and whatnot. And so we started looking at the possibility of creating a business. I needed a job too. And so we started creating a business around that and started doing farmers markets in 2010 and uh, pretty quickly learned that I had to make a choice. I could either be a rancher and raise all the animals myself, or I could you know, be the sales and marketing guy. And that, that is definitely my strong suit is the sales and marketing. And so uh, I developed a network of six to eight local ranches that raised for me. And so probably within two years, I stopped really producing anything myself and had a network of ranches that raised for me. And we set about, you know, taking fresh meat to the farmer's market. That was kind of what made us unique was we were the first local people to really bring fresh meat to the farmer's market. It had always been, you know, generic white wrapped frozen blocks that, you know, were pretty much unidentifiable except for the red stamp that the local butcher shop put on them.
0: And I want to get into kind of how that grew, but before we do, maybe zoom out a little bit You know, where was sort of the local food movement then versus where it is now? You know, uh, Omnivore's Dilemma came out, I don't know, in maybe 07, somewhere around there. And it seemed like that was peak, but it seems like it's actually only grown. So that obviously wasn't peak. From your perspective, how's that developed in the past 12, 13 years?
1: I think we were super fortunate, I guess. You know, I always tend to look at things as being super fortunate uh, in terms of what you know, goes on in my life and my business. When everything kind of collapsed in 2008, and by the time we got here and figured out what we were doing and and started our business in 2010, and it really took off in 2011 with the addition of our meat CSA, I think what was happening at that time was people were kind of coming out of their turtle shell, right? They were figuring out that they could live without the luxuries that they had in the early 2000s with all the money and all the refis and everything. And what it felt like they were deciding from talking with our customers was, Rather than spend, you know, $50,000 on a new car or $10,000 on a luxury vacation, they were going to take the little disposable cash that they had and do things for their family that meant something. And a big piece of that was what they fed their families. And so I think that was really, you know, Poland's book coming out in that time frame, 2007, 2008, whenever it was, people picking up on that, you know, and, and starting to look at what they were doing for themselves. You know, what could they do for themselves that wasn't a tremendous expense and maybe move around their, quote unquote, disposable dollars into areas that benefited their family more than just a one time trip or, you know, leather seats instead of cloth seats, that kind of thing. And so we really, you know, kind of picked up on that and tried to be an educator when it came to that in whatever little way we do. And I did that through a newsletter that we sent out. I call it weekly ish. And it's still to this day, you know, 11 years later is the pretty much the only marketing that we do besides word of mouth is this newsletter that I put out as often as I can get around to it. So, yeah, let's talk about this newsletter a little bit. The
0: only marketing you basically do. How do people get on the newsletter and how do you convert people that are on the newsletter?
1: Sure. So this is probably the uh, the sneakiest thing that we do as a business is. If you purchase something from us at a farmer's market and get an email receipt, then we capture that email address. Early days, we just asked, right? We said, hey, can we add you to our newsletter list? There's a box just like every other website at the bottom of my homepage at vicfarmmeats.com that you can put your email address in and that'll get you the newsletter. And uh, at the risk of breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, it's apparently pretty entertaining to read. I'm pretty sarcastic and pretty snarky and People seem to enjoy that, my style of writing for whatever it's worth. I get it out when I can and kind of taken on a life of my own. I get flack from customers at the farmer's markets when I don't get it out very often. And there have been gaps of two months at a time and I hear it from people. But the conversion is simply trust. You know, that's the kind of underlying theme to our business practices is customers over time learn to trust us. And once we gain that trust, we protect it, you know, like gold. Our longtime customers will tell you that, you know, they don't worry about what they buy from us. They know that it's as good a product in terms of how it's raised and how it's processed as they can find. And so they just get what we have available. That is so relevant,
0: I mean, to any business. And I think it's often misunderstood, you know, that well, marketing is about conversion and, you know, to your point, marketing is about trust, you know, the conversion may or may not happen, but it definitely won't happen without trust. That's really, that's great. So take us back to these farmers markets. First of all, is it possible for a farm, you know, to remain viable with farmers markets kind of being their distribution or their the place where they sell their product? I mean, is that a viable business model in most cases?
1: It's a viable part to a business model. I think you have to pay close attention to your customer's needs. And that sounds really trite, right? Of course, you have to pay attention to the customer's needs. But I'll give you a couple examples. When we started out, we thought we had this brilliant idea. We were going to do a meat annuity is what we called it. Like from my business background and stuff, we were going to set up this meat annuity and one of the challenges with buying meat, you know, it used to be, or it still is to this day, but you know, you can buy a half a beef. It's kind of a gray area in the market, right? You can buy a beef from that you're buying, quote unquote, the live animal, and then the rancher is taking it to the local state-inspected facility. It's being butchered. You send in your cut and wrap instructions, et cetera, and now you've got your big chest freezers full at home. Well, that's great. Once you get through the ribeyes and the fillets on that whole beef, you've got 250 pounds of ground beef you got to get through and stew meat and whatnot. So our concept was early on was we will buy all these animals and we will send you quarterly packages of beef, pork, lamb, and chicken. We were even providing the little chest freezer because you didn't need a big one and you'd always have fresh. It was going to be a balanced thing, right? We'd sit down and we'd talk with you and figure out just like an investment. What do you need? What does your family eat, et cetera? So we had this whole thing all laid out. We spent months working out the details of this meat annuity, didn't sell a single one. Nobody wanted it. All people wanted was to buy the cuts that we had available at the farmer's market. So we adapted and quickly figured out that what people wanted was they wanted fresh meat at their farmer's market that they could pick from just like a local butcher shop, but just knew where the meat came from. And so, you know, we changed that and we've had a number of iterations of things that we've tried over the years that haven't worked and got it down to the point where we are one of the few vendors at a farmer's market that sells a wide variety of meats, all fresh. You know, it's a wide variety that you can buy your staples there every week. I think that's one of the things that's made our business successful is we have beef lamb pork chicken sausages rabbits we're very fortunate in that because we have our own butcher shop that gives us some flexibility that other meat vendors don't have so i think it's important to take when you're looking at a business and and model and deciding you know what will work and what won't work it's pretty hard you know like i've got a good friend who um julie rosati who runs rosati ranch in petaluma and she does one farmer's market a week and and she does veal and goat. I mean, you have gotta be awesome at marketing and she is. She's all-star when it comes to this because if your two products are veal and goat, I mean, goat's the most eaten meat in the world, but it certainly isn't in the United States and veal has its own connotations, yet she's killing it with this business because she does a great job of being transparent, of inviting people out to the ranch to see how things are done and putting out the best product there is available in those two categories. You can do it, but you got to be awesome at what you do to pull that off. And so you're selling this fresh meat
0: at the farmer's market. You're the only ones there that are fresh. Everybody else is frozen. And at that time, then things are taken off. What kind of convinced you that the next step was to get a butcher shop?
1: Since I started this business, it's always been a dream of mine to, to have that flexibility, to have that control. I wanted to be able to control all aspects of the business. I'm a control freak by nature anyway. And so having that, you know, as part of our repertoire was was super important. We looked at building out our own shop in 2013 and couldn't pencil it out at that point. And so I kind of talked my way into community market in Sebastopol, which is a, uh employee-owned cooperative market in uh, this new shopping center in Sebastopol. And I literally talked the general manager into penciling in what ended up being 120 square foot production floor and a little bit of space in their walk-in, and we've been there since they opened day one. It's been awesome. The amount of meat that we produce out of that little space is pretty remarkable, but we have outgrown it and are looking forward to opening our own standalone 2,000-square-foot butcher shop here in the next three or four months.
0: Wow. Okay, so you've been renting 120-square-foot from a supermarket that includes like a place to cut
1: and wrap and store in a walk-in? Yeah, everything's on wheels, so it's all modular. We've got space out in the hall to put the bandsaw and the grinder and all that kind of stuff. We've got an eight-foot case, and we, uh, yeah, just move equipment in as we need it every day. And we've got a, you know, two-foot by four-foot cutting block, and we make the most of the space that we have. But, yeah, and it's not all cut there. We we have a good relationship with a local USDA cut-and-wrap facility where we get meat sent to us. We Our whole animals go to them. They break them into primals big chunks, and then the primals come to us, and uh, we do the final butchering for the most part at our shop. Okay.
0: Where does the actual slaughter take place?
1: Slaughter depends on the animal. Chickens are uh, slaughtered in Petaluma, and beef, right now, we're hauling all the way up to Eureka or out to Orland. Pigs go up to Orland every week. Slaughter has always been a challenge for anybody in this business trying to go direct to consumer because it has to be done in a USDA facility. And the small guys are getting squeezed out by the big boys. So the onus has been put on the ranchers to actually develop their own solution to that problem. And we've done that with the Bay Area Ranchers Cooperative. I do want to talk about that. But for people not familiar with the area,
0: uh, you're talking like three or four hours away, right?
1: Yeah, it's 250 miles each way to Eureka, which is where the primary beef slaughter facility is available to us. There's others, but that's the one we use generally. Pigs up to Orland, which is about uh, 170 miles each way. Chickens are local here to uh, Petaluma. And uh, lambs are out in the valley, which is, you know, four hours round a trip. You know,
0: you, you moved into this butcher shop that you're renting. But not all of your meat is going to farmers markets, right? I mean, you've started uh, marketing it different ways. Tell us about that.
1: In 2011, I started to look into CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, And kind of developed, we call it a meat subscription. And so we developed our own meat CSA and that started in 2011. We used farmer's markets as pickup points and the butcher shop, obviously, when we opened that in 2013. And that originally it was a way that we could get a cash infusion because we did them on six and 12 month subscriptions when we started out. So people would pay six or 12 months at a time. Uh, ahead of time, they would get a discount for that. Our business would get a cash infusion every time we sold one of those. And then that person would get meat for the next you know, six or 12 months. It's changed over time. And actually, we're kind of the silver lining for COVID because the biggest change to our business came last March. On March 13th, when COVID kind of exploded here, Laura and I kind of made a very quick business decision to offer home delivery for free for the next two weeks to get people meet when everybody was kind of in a panic about where their food was going to come from and uh we've wanted to do home delivery forever i could never scale it i could never get enough people in one location to justify sending a truck or a van out to deliver and covid kind of gave us that scale overnight that was what sent our business kind of to the next level is we uh started shipping all over the Western United States. We have 11 states that we can ship to relatively inexpensively. We can ship anywhere, it's just expensive elsewhere. And then uh, we do home delivery three days a week all over the Bay Area from San Jose out to Pleasanton, up to uh, Cloverdale and out to the coast and everywhere in between. And that has dramatically changed our business. We grew about 240% year to date from March to now.
0: Wow. And I realized what you said. I mean, you needed that scale in order to even offer home delivery. But how do you scale the rest of the operation to that amount? I mean, you know, like you need the scale on one end, but on the other end, you've got to go source that meat. You've got to process it. I mean, how did you scale the rest of the operation?
1: Well, because we are dealing with small local ranches, relatively speaking, these are people that, you know, their whole nature is to be able to pivot on a dime. And one of the things I've done a number of podcasts over the past year talking about this kind of topic. And one of the central themes to it is we in America have an incredibly efficient delivery system. So when you look at Amazon and I mean, you think back 10 years ago when, you know, Amazon didn't exist as it does today. And you look at what we can do now where, you know, I need two mallets from my butcher shop to crack crabs for crab season. And I order them today and they show up on my doorstep tomorrow morning. I mean, that's remarkably efficient. That's incredibly efficient. The problem is it's also extremely fragile. And we've seen that in the early days of COVID, how fragile our delivery system was, not just with meat or food in general or anything, but I mean, everything, you know, two guys at a meat plant get sick and spread COVID over the course of a meat plant. And you shut down 7% of the pork production in the country. That's nuts. That's not sustainable. It's great because it's super efficient, but it's not sustainable. And we've seen that. When you deal with small local farms, when you deal with people you know and have a relationship with, you have the ability to pivot and to change how you do things. They have the relationship with the small local slaughterhouse to say, hey, you know, the restaurant business is dead, but we've got this opportunity. We need to change how we harvest and when we harvest and they can make that adjustment on the fly because they have a relationship. They know the guy, they know Bud at the slaughter facility and, and he can make an adjustment to their schedule to adapt. And when you have that ability, that adaptability to whatever situation is thrown at you, it makes you a sustainable business. It means you can change whatever you're doing today to adapt to what needs to be done as long as it makes business sense. So we're super fortunate. We have the relationship with our producers, our ranchers, to be able to increase our production over time. There's definitely been gaps. I mean, even this week, I've got orders for 25 pounds of ground turkey that I can't fill. And it's just because I couldn't get enough last week. And that's one of the hazards of dealing with small local producers is you're going to run out of stuff. But luckily, I've got a good enough relationship with most of my customers that I can call up and say, hey, why don't you try this? Or we're going to grind some chicken for you because we don't have turkey Will at work. And, you know, they're pretty amenable to that sort of thing.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I think we've all heard that customers were driven towards this sort of model in the early days of the pandemic. What's the retention been like and what, what's your sense of is this something that has been a shift, you know, like a zeitgeist, I guess, uh, like a a shift that's going to stay that way? Or is this something where once everything starts to feel more normalized, whatever that means, that we're kind of going to drift back to the old ways?
1: Well, I mean, I learned a long time ago, I I can make business projections and look at what I think is going to happen in the future. And and 99% of the time I am wrong. Where I look at, the retention is in the renewals of our subscriptions. That's really the only thing I can do is we certainly, I've got people that ordered, um, you know, early on when COVID broke out in March and April and May, you know, I was just every night stunned. I'd look at orders coming in through the web store and, you know, random people would order $1,500 worth of meat that I'd never heard of, that had never called me or anything. They just, you know, needed meat and we're going to order it. Certainly that doesn't happen today as often, but what has happened is the people that signed up for subscriptions early in the hopes of getting a spot in line have renewed their subscriptions about 80% of the time. That's an indicator to me that we're, you know, we're probably doing pretty good. I mean, certainly sales have not, they've definitely plateaued, um, but they have not trailed off at all. We haven't had a month since last March that was less than the month prior. So it's a continual steady Flow right now that you know we are excited about, cautiously optimistic about, but you know, I never trust anything like that. So we're just we're kind of grinding through it, and making sure that we fill orders as fast as we can, and um, try to teach more people about what we do. That's been the biggest godsend is being able to educate people of why it's better. And I think that to the large part, if you can get people to not only understand why it's better but try the product, try the meat, that's the conversion factor. It doesn't have anything to do with how witty I am or how cool my newsletters are you know, the hat I wear, it's always about the product and the taste and the flavor.
0: Sure. Well, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about What it takes to build more regional food systems, you know, resilient food systems. You talked about kind of what happened when the pandemic hit. We certainly have all seen, you know, the effects of having a highly concentrated food system or consolidated, maybe is a better word. So how do we kind of build these more regional food systems to where, you know, they are resilient? What are the challenges to maybe doing that?
1: I've been talking about, you know, regional food systems and particularly as it relates to um, processing when you sell to the general public, when you sell meat to the general public, you have to process in a USDA facility. So the challenge has been that that is a constantly shrinking entity. In our area here in Northern California, the last local USDA facility uh, shut its doors to all the small local producers that wouldn't go under its label. That was Marin Sun Farms in last December, so a little over a year ago. And that created a situation where the local ranching community kind of got together and said, well, we've got to figure something out. And a lot of ideas were tossed around. A committee was formed called Musk at the time and uh, did a tremendous amount of marketing research to figure out what it would take to do this. And through all of that, that's where the Bay Area Ranchers Cooperative was born. I'm the uh, vice president of that co-op. And the concept is pretty simple. It's been tried throughout the country a number of different ways. We think we've got a a way that it might work, and you know we've got a lot of investors that have kind of backed that play. And the idea is that if you have a mobile slaughter unit, that alleviates some of the regulation that goes into building a bricks and mortar slaughter facility. You got to think of it in terms of a, it's a mobile home, not an RV. Um, and I think the the failures that have happened with these MSUs, mobile slaughter units have been because people love the concept of, you know, truck and trailer going ranch to ranch and harvesting animals and the animals don't have to be put in a trailer and all that would be awesome. That's the ultimate goal. The problem is it's not profitable. You spend way too much time tearing down and setting up and driving to be able to pencil that out. So our concept is we have a semi-permanent home for it. As I said, if you think of it as a mobile home, it's on wheels, we can move it, but we don't plan to any more than we absolutely have to. So, we've picked a site, we've ordered the trailer, and we are going to be operational hopefully by mid May with this. The cooperative model is another big piece to that puzzle in the sense that because our members are our customers, you know, there's not a lot of marketing that has to be done here. We had a meeting yesterday of the co op board where we approved. The first batch of new members after the founding members. And so we now figure that we have basically with the 35 members that we have on board, that takes up about 60 percent of our capacity.
0: Oh, wow. And I was just going to ask about the cost difference in the investment versus one of these mobile units, which, you know, call semi mobile, whatever you want to call it, versus if you were to build, you know, a processing plant that had similar capacity.
1: So, with similar capacity, you, that, you wouldn't be able to do it, right? Because if you're building a bricks and mortar facility, you would need much greater capacity because you've got land costs involved with that. You've got the construction costs involved with that. For us, with the mobile units, uh, a mobile unit is $400,000, give or take, for the trailer. And this is a USDA certified trailer. So, we can expand just by spending another $400,000 every time we need to expand. It's not quite that simple, but for all intents and purposes, When you talk about a bricks-and-mortar facility, first of all, you got to deal with NIMBYism. Nobody wants a slaughter facility in their backyard. It's ironically not considered an agricultural endeavor. So you can't build a slaughter facility on ag land without having a county use permit, depending on what county you're in and what their regulations are. That may change, but for us, that's the way it is. So we've looked at a number of different opportunities and options on where to put it and whatnot. We think we've come up with a pretty good solution But it's, you know, even with the mobile unit, the infrastructure to build out with corrals and concrete slab and all the things that need to be there is still, you know, several hundred thousand dollars to build out the infrastructure.
0: And so in this case, you'll probably be able to, you know, deliver animals, let's say 50 ish miles away rather than 250 miles away and share the cost of that facility with the other people in the co-op.
1: Yeah, the beauty of a co-op model is a couple things. One is being able to locate it centrally to the majority of our members. So of the 35 current members, I would say probably 85, 90% of those are within 50 miles. That may change as we fill out the membership, but for right now, everybody's pretty close by. In terms of the costs, the other nice thing about the co-op is, let's say that we start off and it costs $250 to harvest a beef. At the end of the year, we're always going to look at the uh, true cost of harvesting that beef and refund the difference back to our membership through their capital account. That's the very nature of a co-op. So if the actual cost of, of harvesting that beef was uh, $200, then everybody would get their money back you know, to their capital account based on their uh, patronage of the facility.
0: And then does a bottleneck become the cutting and wrapping at this point then? So you have a place to do the, you know, initial slaughter, and then you've got to do the primal cuts and then the cutting and wrapping. That probably coincides with you expanding your butcher shop, I imagine.
1: It does. The co-op intends to open a cut and wrap facility as well. And that's kind of 2.0 for us because that is a massive bottleneck. And one of the challenges for the co-op is we have to be sensitive to scheduling our customers slaughter dates with their cut and wrap dates because it's so hard to get into cut and wrap facilities around here right now. So it's a very delicate dance that we do to make sure that everybody gets taken care of and the carcasses, get to the right house at the right time. But yes, for me, that is another control feature is, you know, we're expanding our butcher shop for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is if we get into a pinch and can't get cut and wrap, we can always do it in house.
0: Right. And so are the other members of the co-op, you said there's 35, you know, are they kind of like sales and marketing type people like yourself, you know, I'm wondering is, is the problem they're solving for themselves the same as the problem you're solving for yourself? Obviously, it's processing capacity, but kind of more along, like, what are the ends to it for others?
1: I am definitely an outlier in this group. The vast majority of the members are actual you know ranchers that are producing animals. And as I mentioned, I don't do any of that anymore. These are the ranchers that are looking to go literally direct to market with their animals from their ranch. So, problem they're solving is the ability to take their product to market directly to the consumer and abide by the USDA rules and regulations, and avoiding that gray area, right, where we talked about earlier, where somebody buys a "quote-unquote" live animal and it's processed for them, et cetera. Uh, one of the things about Barrier Ranchers Co-op or Bar C, as we call it, is it's kind of like a referee or an offensive lineman. If everything goes according to plan, you'll never hear about us. No consumer will ever know who we are. That's the way we want it our customers are the ranchers that are taking their product out to market. There's never intended to be a C brand. And you're never going to go into a grocery store and see C ground beef or C chicken breasts. We want the ranchers to market their own products. And our job is solely processing.
0: I love it. You know, for a lot of reasons we talk about on this show, or we, we have at least talked about sort of like the Amazon web services of ag, meaning like this infrastructure that exists and of course ag it will be physical infrastructure not digital but uh, this infrastructure that exists behind the scenes that enables the transaction that you really want to have happen and that's totally what this is right i mean it, it's to enable you and other brands to sell your own products and well process your own products so you can sell them you kind of alluded to earlier like obviously you know People want filet mignon, but not everybody wants some of the other lesser value cuts. How do you handle that? Is I mean, is that where the kind of the assorted subscription model comes in is so that you can make sure that when you process an animal, all of that animal gets utilized and marketed sold?
1: It certainly was in the beginning. I mean, when I first designed our subscription box, you know, we had a five pound box and a 10 pound box and the five pounds was made up of two pounds of ground or stew, two pounds of roasts and a pound of steaks or chops. And that was kind of how I saw the animal being built and what we had to move in order to make it balanced. It's changed a lot since then for a couple of reasons. One is, again, it comes down to education. It comes down to that silly little newsletter that I do where I have a platform and I can tell people how awesome lamb neck is. You know, lamb neck carnitas to this day are still one of my favorite foods of all time. And it's an extremely inexpensive cut of meat. Beef shanks, we call them marrow steaks more as a joke than anything else. But marrow steaks are another killer cut uh, beef shank where you can braise them into any kind of osobuco recipe. Osobuco sounds super fancy, and you see it all the you know the white tablecloth restaurants and whatnot with a pretty lamb shank sticking out. Osobuco just means hollow bone in Italian, so you can use any shank you want for that. It's the marrow that you're trying to get out of that shank that makes the unctuous gravy and sauce that goes with that. So I think through education. Through talking with people at the farmer's markets, through having really great guys that work for me at the farmer's markets and understand the difference and know how to cook a little bit and have been educated by me over the years as to, you know, not what we want to move necessarily. I mean, certainly, don't get me wrong. Every time we harvest a beef, we've got to move 250 pounds of grind and stew. And I got to do that before I get to the next beef. However, by educating people, we're getting people that order that kind of thing, that order the short ribs and the chuck roasts and the pot roasts and so on. So, you know, it's not as big a problem as it used to be. We also uh, are very fortunate in that our primary beef ranches, Sunfed Ranch and Five Dot Ranch, both out of Northern California, are big enough that we can order primal cuts from them. So I don't necessarily have to do a whole beef all the time. You know, it's Valentine's weekend, right? So we've got, you know, 24 Pismo's or whole beef tenderloin sitting in our cooler right now waiting to be cut into beautiful little filet mignon steaks for, you know, Valentine's Day. That's another massive adjustment we've had to make is... You know, when you're a butcher shop, there's two things you have to know to be a a proper butcher. Certainly, you have to know how to cut animals, right? You have to know how to process primals into retail cuts. The other thing you have to know is every single holiday and what people eat for that holiday. And it doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter what your culture is. You have to know every holiday that comes up and what is served. So we prepare for all those, right? So we do sweetheart steaks where you butterfly out a ribeye and it looks like the shape of a heart naturally. And we do filet mignon, we'll have bacon wrapped filets, and we do lobster tails that we bring in from Maine for the holiday. At Christmas time and Thanksgiving, we had to adjust. We had to shrink down all of our normal orders, not for less, way more, but much smaller portions. So I sold, you know, four to one small turkeys versus medium and large turkeys this year than I normally would have. And luckily enough, we were able to make that adjustment with our turkey ranch. So, you know, that's another adjustment that we've had to make on the fly is is changing the proportions that we prepared for different holidays. Corn beef's coming up for St. Patty's Day, and my beef guy has already made the adjustment that, you know, corned beef roasts are going to be two pounds instead of three and a half to four pounds this year um, because people still aren't ready to have big parties yet.
0: That's a really interesting point. Well, last question, and then I'm going to let you go here, but if anybody's listening and they are, you know, maybe a small cattle producer or, you know, hog producer, and they think, you know, I would love to kind of form one of these types of co-ops in my area so that we can kind of get some processing power here. What would you tell them? What advice would you give them to making that happen and making it successful?
1: The first thing I tell them is to wait six months and see if we know what we're doing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I I mean, I feel really good about where Barcy is and, and where we're going. And we've got a pretty, pretty solid group on the board of directors that is making decisions and building this thing from scratch. Our plan is once we are operational and to the point where we have a general manager that is running the daily operations and we as a board can get to just govern and not create. One of the things that we will do is we will put together a whole package on, you know, how we got from start to finish. And I would think that would be pretty interesting. If you're going to start from scratch, I mean, we've talked to we've had a number of entities. We've been fortunate to have some pretty good press in things like this podcasts like yours. Uh, Civil Eats did a nice article on us. California Farm Bureau put out a nice article on us. And so um, we've been a, approached by entities from Ohio and Oklahoma and Kansas kind of all over the country Colorado wanting to know you know what are the pitfalls what do we have to look out for and everything and uh, we're still identifying them I mean we haven't we haven't harvested anything yet so we think we know what we're doing but that'll be proven in May when we get this thing operational so far so good so I don't really know what advice I would give other than you know let us be the guinea pig and then we'll all find out how it works.
0: Well, thank you so very much to Adam Parks for being on the show. You can learn more about Victorian Farmstead Meat Company at his website, vicfarmmeats.com, V-I-C, and learn more about the Bay Area Ranchers Cooperative at bayarearanchers.com. In fact, they've been doing a crowdfunding campaign that you may want to check out. Shout out to the Fieldwork Podcast for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you go check them out at fieldworktalk.org. As always, thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.